Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bone Campus and beyond. A production of the Bone Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez. We're telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. Today we're speaking with fellow students Brendan Murtha, class of 21, and James O'Shea, class of 2020, um, who are both big birders at Bowdoin. Um, thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so let's start with the basics. What does an average day of birding look like? So ideally, obviously, the days of birding here while I'm a student at Bowdoin are certainly constrained. Um, but... Ideally, a day of birding looks like getting up early, ideally pre-dawn, getting out somewhere local. To me, it generally has some sort of a goal in mind. If it's not looking for a specific species, it's based on the time of year. Where do I want to go where I think the birding could be best, where I could run into things I haven't seen in a while, or um, just get out to a beautiful location I haven't been to in a while and experience Mm -hmm. it that way. That's kind of how I structure my days, generally. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting question, because, like, uh, uh, there, you have birding days where you, you, you set out and you're like, okay, today I'm, I'm setting aside this whole time to do nothing but birding and to go walk around in the woods or go out to a marsh or something. But then oftentimes birding is just interspersed throughout uh, the day, mm-hmm. whether mm-hmm. like I'm walking to class and there happens to be some migrating warblers on the quad that I'll then be five or ten minutes late to my, <laughs> my next <laughs> class. And some of my professors are... Uh, um, sympathetic to those causes, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, like, so there's there's different ways of kind of going about it. Yeah. I found yeah. yeah, and I I'm honestly one of the ways of birding in which I think is most common for me now is I'll just get a report of something unusual that's been seen in the area, and if I uh, have half an hour to kill, I'll hop in the car, try to go see it, come back with a time to spare. That's honestly uh, a form of birding that, especially while I'm at school, has become more and more frequent. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> How did you guys get into birding initially, um, and what have you gained from your experiences from birding? So, so I, I first got into birding uh, independently. I uh, had no other birding people in my family to really get me started. But as with, I, th- I think many many birders or other people with obsessive interests, <laughs> I was very really into dinosaurs as a kid, uh, and so that certainly lended itself to memorizing species names and just reading field guides and dinosaur books just like over and over cover to cover while uh, I was alone in my house <laughs> and then my, my local library which I spent a lot of time at as a young child had a, an extensive uh, uh, bird specimen collection in a big case that I would go stare at in the <laughs> adults only section of the library so my mom would have to like she was like you better not talk like while you're in here like you can go stand in front of the birds for an hour if you want but like you can't talk in there or you're gonna get kicked out and then uh, th- that's kind of how I started, just, yeah. just messing around in the woods. Yeah, and I had a slightly more kind of communal uh, introduction to birding. My dad uh, is a, he worked at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. He's kind of always been a nature artist, but his specialty was birds. Uh, back when I was younger, I don't think he would necessarily have considered himself a birder, but he really knew his local birds just uh, through kind of the more artistic lens. Um, and so starting from a young age, I would got to appreciate birds and got to know some of the local birds just through what he was painting and through some of the stuff he was doing at the museum. Um, and then as I got a little older, my dad had started getting into birding more and more and kind of as a, uh, an, a hobby, um, going out with coworkers from the museum to like bird in Central Park on lunch breaks and stuff like that. And as I, I idolized my dad for a lot of reasons. <laughs> um, but I'd be... I started to kind of idolize uh, these coworkers as well. Um, people who were like middle-aged, just 
who otherwise could be like rather boring people who had like latched onto this kind of obscure thing which was birding and were using it as like a way to just like get outside all the time and constantly we're just telling like all these crazy stories about like times they'd spent in the field and various different interesting places um and so from a very early age birding was not only rooted in just a, a generalized fascination for the natural world that i had but also as being like wow people like live a lifestyle that's very uh like continuously adventurous uh, if they kind of hold this as something that they value and that was something I was drawn mm. towards mm. so yeah yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> okay so um, kind of going off of that where are you guys originally from and how does like I guess the birding differ from where you're originally from and here if there are any differences like do you notice that or well, yeah. well, we're both from, from New England. I'm from yeah. Massachusetts, and Brent's from Connecticut. So the birding isn't terribly different yeah. here yeah. Uh, compared to where, where we normally are. But there definitely are some differences, mm-hmm. uh, especially being near the coast. Like, I'm, I'm significantly much more inland, and so I didn't have access, or at least, like, ready access to a lot of the sea-watching that I've, I've now gotten really into since mm-hmm. coming to boat and being able to go out to the coast and look at all the Arctic ducks coming down in the winter, the alcids, um, even, like, going to, like, Ken Island over the summer, like, diving into seabirds like that was something I'd never done before. I was very suspicious of seabirds before really? coming here. But now I've, I, mean, I don't know, I just, because I, I didn't, I didn't know them. And I, I knew all the little songbirds and everything, and I was comfortable with that. And, you, you know, there's tribalism and everything so <laughs> i just, i hadn't lashed onto them i didn't really get the allure until i was thrown into <laughs> seeing them all the time yeah mm. and echoing that like um i wouldn't again the habitats around brunswick are not all that different from um in connecticut there are a few species of birds that we have up here pretty commonly that you would never see at home um, like a five-hour drive south stuff like black guillemot on the coast it doesn't really make it any further south than Maine. So there's like, it's cool to see kind of differences in mm. species assemblages over those short distances. Um, but one of the big differences I would say is that at home, right, on the, I grew up on the Connecticut coastline, like habitat was really fragmented. I was birding in a lot of just like kind of degraded areas. And oftentimes the, the, my best birding experiences were not associated with any like kind of overwhelming natural beauty um i spent a lot of time birding at like landfills and stuff like that um which are surprisingly good but here in maine i've also um it's been really nice to kind of get out into some really spectacular um you know broader open spaces and experience birding that's more kind of immersed into like connecting yourself to actual like larger ecosystems as opposed to just kind of like one-off things here and there yeah 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 yeah, mm-hmm. and I guess aside from the landfills, do you have any like particular favorite locations, both here in Maine or back at home? Yeah, well, uh, back at home, my birders have what, generally have what they call patches. Um, there, again, there's tribalism and everything, um, and oftentimes if you kind of claim a location as your own, obviously this is by no, there's no official uh, sanctions here, but uh, so the, the place you bird. Brother Murph is imposing sanctions fellow <laughs> you bird. There's like, you know, you, you bird a place frequently, you become like, you, you become, People you're like able to know, to know the place mm-hmm. more than like any other birder would. And like, so, you know, you, you also, for me, that was um, a good incentive to like, find as many birds as possible in this one location. So I had this little park down the road from me. It was called the Dolce Center. And it was just like a convention center with, a, you know, kind of manicured grounds with like ponds with fountains. But occasionally, especially during migration, like cool stuff would turn up there. Um, they've actually changed the name since I, I went away to school. It's now oh. called Lakota Oaks, which is dumb. Uh, I refuse to call it that. Um, Why do you think it's dumb, Brendan? Uh, because, again, 
Dolce Center holds a very special place in my heart and always will. It's like wh- where I started like burning independently. I could walk to it from my house. Um, <sighs> and then here in Maine, my favorite place, and maybe James actually uh, shares this uh, affinity, but the Bowdoin Sand Plain on mm-hmm. the edge of the airfield is one of my favorite places to go. Mm-hmm. Especially this fall, I really got into um, getting out to the sand plain at least once a week um, before class, so getting out there before dawn. Um, and there's something about being on the edge of the tree line on the airfield. You have a big open space, and you're pretty close to the coast. So if birds are migrating, um, because we have so many peninsulas here on the main coast, like they're kind of funneling down, especially during fall migration, from the north to the south. And in that big open space, um, it's pretty easy to like actively observe some good diurnal migration. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found it really, really fascinating to get out there and like kind of monitor the passage of birds over subsequent weeks. So now I would say the sampling has been my local patch. Yeah, and even during like the uh, uh, early fall, late spring, Brendan and I often go out to just the middle of the quad to listen to at night to listen to all these like, like migrants. Uh, yeah, like just like middle of the quad by Hubbard, you oh, can hear you you can hear a ton of birds migrating over during migration migration season. You mm-hmm. can just like step out of the library for twenty minutes and just like yeah. listen to <laughs> all sorts of warblers and sparrows yeah. and, and thrushes to like do these like chip notes that yeah, are Brendan can distinguish them apparently, but I I, well. I, 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 I can it. usually <laughs> tell like okay, war that's warblery, that's a thrushy, but like you you can get a, a sense of. The, the massive movements of birds that are moving over you completely unseen, which is cool. Mm-hmm. That you can kind of engage with these these animals like at any time in any place, yeah. uh, d- d- as long as you kind of know like when and where to like keep your yeah. eyes or ears out for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we talk a lot about the effects of climate change, um, and I wanted to ask you guys if you've any seen any like effects in like in your birding. Are there, like, any particular species that would typically be around that you don't see? Or, like, maybe older birders that you know have sort of, like, anecdotal um, thoughts about that? Yeah. Yeah, and this is a really good question. I think, and we may get to this later, but one of the things that birding is really well-suited to do is by engaging people with kind of, like, the natural rhythms and cycles of, of uh, the you know, natural world. Um, you kind of amass the skill set to be able to identify when things are out of whack or when things are not occurring uh, exactly as they were in previous years. Um, And so for me, actually, (coughs) I don't know if I could pinpoint any changes in bird life uh, that I could attribute directly to climate change. Mm -hmm. Um, Certainly, you know, this past summer I worked out on uh, a guiding boat out of Booth Bay where we did whale watches and puffin cruises um, and I was kind of the interpretive naturalist on board and one of the things that I really you know loved to talk about during those tours when we went out to Eastern Egg Rock where the puffins were nesting um, was talking about all the ways in which for people who have monitored this like breeding colony on the island the effects of climate change are really really apparent um, in you know the changes of fish species and assemblages that the birds are bringing back to the island, which have all sorts of um, consequences for their breeding success. I will say on my own time, not only, you know, am I aware of just general species trends that have been going on for decades that have kind of eclipsed uh, the time that I've been birding. Um, I've also used birding as a way to familiarize myself with the natural world as a whole. And so some of the kind of instances of, of climactic change that I've seen over my lifetime are not necessarily bird related, but mainly in like insect abundance, et cetera, stuff mm-hmm. that I 
only notice because I'm constantly outside burning. So do you um, like literally notice like fewer bugs? Like is that something? There's like? a lot less bugs. It's, really? it's actually yeah. kind of not too hard to notice. Like mm-hmm. once you start paying attention, yeah. like there was a, a we were talking about this the other day, but there was a, a study put out um, recently. There was a, a Puerto Rican uh, like insect survey thing where they were having a, like a cash per unit effort of like how many insects. Basically, a measure of like how many insects like are in a place and they the numbers from like 1970s to like 2019 went from something like 478 insects per Mm -hmm. unit effort to eight and it's like obviously that's that is an extreme example but like stuff like 60 percent declines in like i know germany had like just 60 percent declines across the uh like across the board for insects and like similar stuff is certainly happening here yeah i know brennan has noticed uh, significantly less butterflies yep. around yep. recently, and I like it, it, it. And it's hard to tell, especially with like insects. Like you're gonna have like a density of them that like once it drops off, it's a bit more visible than like birds. They're already somewhat dispersed, mm-hmm. and so it's often hard to notice, especially like over the years. Like yeah. you, it you know, you get used to a certain amount of birds, and if it declines slowly enough, like you, you don't, you can't tell easily. But yeah. I feel like. Like, one bird that I know I've been paying attention to for a long time, like, wood thrushes. Yeah. I, I hear them less. And they have yeah. one of my favorite songs of all time, a lot of people's favorite songs. And Is it, like, the really echoey one? Yeah, it's kind of ethereal. It, like, yeah. Rises. They, can, they can sing multiple notes at the same time because they have multiple larynxes. And so they can uh, harmonize with themselves. Which wow. is, But, like, those populations, like a lot of other songbirds in oh. the U.S., have tanked by like 30 percent or yeah. so and like i know i know I, I you i used to hear a ton of them as a little kid and it's a treat now to find mm-hmm. one singing and especially yeah. find like a lot of them singing in some woodlot somewhere yeah mm-hmm. that reminded me i mean one of uh the few instances of changes in bird life that i can attribute to um, climactic effects there was a the, the town that i live in connecticut has a series of islands offshore uh, the norwalk islands that i would frequently kayak out into um and some of the islands are protected as national wildlife refuges and there's heron rookeries and there's also a colony on a sandbar of common tern um kind of a type of seabird and the terns they can only nest they nest on the ground on beaches and open areas um and because those kind of habitats are so susceptible not only to human disturbance and development, but also the introduction of predators like raccoons and foxes. They've pretty much just been pushed off of a lot of their kind of uh, traditional breeding areas into just like sandbars and stuff offshore, which now kind of serve those habitat functions, but as we know, are really susceptible to kind of just any uh, sea level rise. And also, mm-hmm. um, if there's extreme tide events um, oh, and it oh. matches up with you know critical breeding times, I mean, the entire colony can be decimated over the course of the year. And I remember one particularly sobering instance where I would kayak out with my dad frequently to check out on the kind of status of this colony. Um, and one year we went out and there had been a, a spring tide that was significantly higher than usual. Um, and as we approached the island, just like hundreds of dead turn chicks were just floating around. The, the entire you know, colony had just been overwashed and dead birds were just floating out to sea. And obviously, you know, those freak events, you can't necessarily attribute to overall, you know, global climate change. But definitely through instances like that, you kind of awareness is raised on, mm-hmm. on how these kind of freak events, which become more and more common, can just have drastic impacts on the lives of like, you know, hundreds of different individual yeah. birds who are emblematic of places that you love and care about. So, yeah. Yeah. but I, I think a lot of kind of awareness of declines in uh, in bird species comes from like an intergenerational sort of conversation. Yeah. And I know Brennan has a lot of like uh, older mentors in the bird world, but even when we were both on Ken Island uh, the other summer, uh, there's 
a, a really nice uh, like mixing of like you know the, the current time and uh, past years and almost like mythic time on this <laughs> island where you can engage with these stories and in records from past years about you know well like people in general but also like bird distributions like what species are on this small island um, how many how many birds of a single species my the my species that I was working on the leeches storm petrels have declined about thirty percent God congruent with like a lot of bird species I'm not sure why thirty <laughs> percent across the board <laughs> but um like the there was a sur- uh, uh, census done uh, I want to say sometime in the nineties and there was a survey done our summer and it dropped by like ten thousand mating pairs and 10, you don't even get yeah. to and that's pairs so that's twenty thousand birds that aren't oh, nesting really? on an island anymore, which is How absurd. How many birds, like, total are yeah, What is that, like, percentage? I think there's 20,000 birds, 20,000 pairs about, I think a bit more nesting on there right like now. But, like, yeah. okay. as, as far as our estimates go. Mm-hmm. But, like, not being able to see see that, right? Because, like, we come there for one summer and we're blown away by just how many petrels are flying around yeah. at night and making yeah, a ruckus. Yeah. I definitely and, remember being like, whoa! <laughs> and, like, you, you'd think, like, this is crazy. Like, this is such a huge amount of birds. Like, there can't be more than this. Yeah. But, like, when you realize, like, it's only a fraction of what was there before. And same with the mm-hmm. gulls. Uh, they suffered summer declines as well and like after when we were walking around there like most uh, <laughs> empty places on the beach or on rocks are covered in gull nest and to think that there were 30 percent more <laughs> hanging out there yeah. all attacking each other and screaming at all times yeah. Yeah. Oh. and as jason mentioned like i i have been fortunate enough to have kind of older mentors in the birding world and i can totally attest to the stories that are passed down really being indicative of the change that's occurred. So even if I haven't necessarily observed these changes in my lifetime, um, even talking to my dad, for instance, who grew up on Long Island, you know, recounting stories of hearing Bob White's calling um, in his yard when he was growing up, and now a Bob White hasn't been seen on Long Island for 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just the absolute clearing out of kind of the scrubland habitat that they depend on. And again, not necessarily climactic things, but we have to recognize the ways in which like habitat destruction and, you know, the declines of insects, for instance, aerial insectivores, so birds that kind of fly around and feed on insects in the air. This is a group of uh, birds that's one of the most badly impacted in terms of uh, just declines over the past a couple decades. And a lot of birders will, you know, re- remark on just how many fewer swallows there are around mm-hmm. them when they were, when they were growing up. And, um, there's a great there's a great study on Kent for the swallows because we have these swallow boxes, which are the only places they're going to nest on the island. And um, a good friend of mine did a study uh, for his honors project some years ago, like showing the decline in these birds, and it went from uh, like 400 something swallow boxes to there was one year a couple years ago when there was a single active nest on the on the island. Now it's back up to eight our year and maybe like 12 16 i think yeah. uh this past summer but yeah. so there's a, a slight uptick but at the same time it's it's unbelievable the yeah. amount of losses and uh professor emeritus nat wilwright was talking to me <laughs> while i was on there and he was saying yeah like this one small field uh the which which field is that east field or something the north, one Northfield? northfield yeah the one going to, down to the the shire had like the the air there would shire. be completely filled with swallows swarming yeah. around, completely filled. There's like a cloud over this small field surrounded by woods, and now there's a couple, couple swallows hanging out there. Yeah, but yeah. No, I mean that that's a a trope in kind of like 
birding legends that are passed down, just old timers, you know, approaching the new people and being like, you have no idea just how many birds used to be here. And like for, you know, for, for us, it's all we've ever known. It's wonderful. And it's, you know, what gets us out there, but to just think about, uh, the declines is really, really terrifying. I, I keep coming up with uh, other examples. Once <laughs> um, <laughs> you start thinking, they, they pop No, absolutely. Yeah, so this past summer, I was really, really fortunate enough to be up in Alaska um, and talking about places that are badly impacted by climate change. Um, Alaska is obviously at the forefront. A lot of this discourse was out on um, St. Paul Island in the Pribilofs, which is an absolutely nutty place that birders flock to for couple different reasons. Uh, yeah, pun intended. Uh, one being, it's a really great, great place to run into, like, vagrant um, Asian migrants. In the Bering Sea, you're, like, almost as close to the Asian continent as you are to the oh, North American continent. And so birds that are migrating from Southeast Asia up to Siberia get blown off course, and this island is a really good place, because mm-hmm. if they're out over the ocean, they'll look for any land they can. Wait, do they literally cross the Pacific? Stuff that's, like, flying up kind of along the east coast of Asia, stuff that's hopping up from Southeast Asia through Japan up okay. to Siberia. If you get, like, prevailing uh, winds out of the west and they get knocked that, out over the ocean over, like, hundreds of miles. I mean yeah bird vagrancy uh, <laughs> bird, especially migrant birds <laughs> ability, ability to, to get off course and end up in really random places is one of the most exciting things because uh, you really never know what's going to show up and, uh, hmm. and yeah. St. Paul Island is a place that pretty much exists to serve mm-hmm. <laughs> birders flock there because of its potential to, for, for rare yeah. birds to show up but at the same time it's also <coughs> um a huge is home to these huge seabird colonies and um the locals on the island who uh mainly are you know sustenance fishermen um and, or and working for the trident seafood company that's up there um we were talking to them about you know we're standing on the edge of these cliffs just being swarmed by millions of kittiwakes and murs and stuff like that and you know just absolutely being blown away by the spectacle of all and this kind of goes to what i was saying and you know locals being around we'd talk to them at night all over dinner and they'd be like yeah i mean obviously this is still like a, a, one of the most incredible places on earth like we're incredibly you know just proud of of what this island has to offer but at the same time like it is a shadow of what it once was mm-hmm. and the you know warming bearing sea crashing fish stocks due to a combination of uh, overfishing and climate change like we do not know how long these colonies will be able to sustain themselves like mass die-offs of puffins and other alcids over recent years have really kind of shaken uh, this local economy which largely uh, now also depends on ecotourism and the the you know funds that birders bring in to see this resource um and that was really harrowing not only because 30, 50 years from now, this could no longer exist, but also introduce an interesting discussion about, you know, what exactly we, as people who supposedly cared immensely about these resources, were giving back and how, like, kind of our transience through tourism and kind of was not really doing enough to support these resources that um, mm-hmm. we supposedly care a lot about. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that sort of, like, hints at the broader context and, like, most important point of our conversation, which is, like, the importance of birding within the context of environmentalism, like, connection with the natural world and sustainability. Could you talk a bit about, like, how you see birding within that larger context? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I, certainly just the, the act of keeping track is something that, if, if people aren't doing, um, like, allows stuff like climate change and land development to happen without mm-hmm. people really noticing and without the stories of these birds being told or and when they're just forgotten like that like it's it's 
you know, it's bad that they're dying, but it seems like a certain, like, double death that's occurring when mm-hmm. people aren't keeping track of, mm-hmm. like, the what's going on with them and people aren't actively grieving for the loss of these birds and what they can bring to people, what they have as an inherent value living themselves. Um, and I, I, I find it at least to be a, a central part of how I think about climate change and how I think about what it means to be alive in this moment, because I, I feel like there's some moral imperative almost to think about like this stuff and take it into like how you live every day, knowing that this sort of like massive, die-off is going on. Like, it, when it, if it was happening with people around you, like, it would be impossible to deny and to not, like, work that into how you act on a day-to-day basis. But when it's, you know, displaced to something like birds or insects, it's, you, you really kind of have to put in the work to, like, think about that at, at any opportunity in order to think, just even just, like, think about it and consider it and then hopefully get to yeah. acting and influencing. Yeah. A lot of people are always, like... If you want to actually act on something, you have to, like, measure it and know about it, mm-hmm. like, first. I feel like that's kind of applicable in yeah. this context, right? Yeah. And having something of a scale of the yeah. declines is big as well. Because mm-hmm. people often, you know, it's like, oh, like, there's less birds in my feeder. But, you know, they're, they're seeing, you know, going from, like, 20 chickadees to 10 chickadees. And it's like, oh, there are chickadees everywhere else. <laughs> like, that's fine. But when you start to become aware of these larger trends and really mm-hmm. paying attention to, like... Uh, these big data studies, like they're showing, like yeah, like across the board, everything is dying, and everything is <laughs> is like they're not just not in your backyard anymore. Yeah, they're not, not in everybody's backyard. Not, at every uh, yeah, every feeder station mm. has ten less chickens. Yeah. And what does that mean overall? And what mm. the, you know, and I, I, I personally yeah. find that example aggravating because after the, the the recent New York Times uh, article came out, that was saying like yeah, thirty percent declines and like even our most three, common three song, billion birds yeah, lost. Three, <laughs> three billion birds. <laughs> North America, we should specify. Um, And for some, well, A, like a lot of people sent me this article, which I had already read, and were like, hey, James, look, a bird article. I'm like, well, thanks. Like, I'm already doing a lot of emotional work with this every day of my life. Thanks for the exclamation point at the end of that text. Um, But then, some, even like some faculty people came up to me um, and were like, hey, James, like, that's a pretty sad article, right? I'm like, yep, that's pretty bad. And, like, but in, and they were like, yeah, well, there's still a lot of chickadees and stuff over in the commons. It can't be that bad. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, like it, and it gets to like a, a certain denial in people because like yeah. it's a huge thing to like really consider that. Th- this is happening within our lifetimes and that yeah, we're witnessing kind of dark I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, also important to consider that when you talk about you know well the birds in the commons still seem to be doing fine we have to recognize that like you know, the tract of land that is the commons and the birds that live there are only a shadow of you know yeah. the population oh of birds that once you know occupied the space um i think yeah <laughs> it but it, it's like <laughs> brent, brent and i uh, have talked a couple times about uh the idea of Central Park is a is a great birding spot <laughs> because you know it, it attracts a ton of rarities. Uh, like, you know, there's a big concentration of birds in the, in the trees there, whereas it it has that sort of concentration because we've decimated for how many miles around that like every inch of available habitat and so they're all forced to go onto this yeah. one patch of trees which is incredibly exciting to see of course and uh, you can see similar things in portland like every spring we, we tend to go out to evergreen cemetery or capisic pond and like they're all concentrated on these little patches and you get to see every bird you could ever want but 
Yeah, there's a reason why it's happening. Yeah, I mean that's interesting. I I was just talking about you know this island in Alaska being a magnet for vagrants because anything that blows out over the ocean, obviously can't land on the water. You need somewhere to refuel. The only patch of land available to you is this island that's otherwise pretty inhospitable uh, to a songbird. Central Park, yeah, although it may be a phenomenal birding location, it really occupies the same function in that if a bird is migrating at night and they the sun comes up and they're over, you know, the greater New York City area and it's just concrete in every direction, you know, horizon to horizon, Central Park is an, a, a functional island. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the same kind of dynamics play out. I think James was getting out a lot of really important stuff that birding is, I think, uniquely situated to do. Uh, I do want to touch upon and citizen science programs in general, which are not... Um, you know, restricted to birding, but are really, really thriving in birding communities. Because it's the idea that, like, you know, understanding climate change and understanding the scale of these issues requires the kind of, like, communal knowledge uh, and investment in, like, our shared history that, like, individual scientists can't actually tap into. And so encouraging people to, like, go into these databases and, like, upload, you know, write about their old sightings or encouraging everyone to, you know, get out in the field and if you, you know, record some information on what birds you're seeing and you submit that, um, places like eBird, I'm a big eBird fan, um, will always make a plug for a huge database that has really been important in producing studies on not only um, declines that have been going on um, across different bird species, but again, then identifying based off millions of sightings that just like everyday birders are submitting, identifying like crucial stopover areas, places where these birds are wintering that like researchers didn't know before. You know, you have um, someone in Latin America, let's say a, a, you know, a Guatemalan a local who gets interested in birds, goes out with this software and is able to identify a population of wood thrush, let's say that's wintering uh, in like one of their local patches. That's an area that was never, you know, accessible or a, 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 you know, a Western scientist at an institution in the U.S. would never have thought to check. So you're kind of decentralizing the scientific process. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, especially in terms of facing down you know, the, the magnitude of, of the threat that we're facing, um, that kind of decentralized, kind of ground-up resistance uh, that is channeled through what were once kind of more um, cloistered scientific pathways is really, really essential. I think birding is... Um, uniquely situated to do that, but also kind of just all general nature study uh, is well-equipped to do as well. Mm-hmm. Kind of going off of that, what's, like, specifically about birding as opposed to, like, other stuff? I mean, I'm, I'm obviously you guys are, like, interested in other stuff, but it sounds like <laughs> birds are kind of number one. Like, what about birds more so than, like, I don't know, looking at, like, trees or, like, salamanders or, like, literally whatever is... Like what? What draws you? Well, frankly, there's just more birds than salamanders. If, if there was, if, if, if I was, if I was in a place where there were potentially hundreds of salamanders available to me for me to see, and salamander like massive herds of salamanders that move through in the spring and fall. It's actually it's just interesting you picked salamanders because I know that James is thinking about going down over spring break to look solely for salamanders in the Smoky Mountains. Um. Highest salamander diversity in the world yeah. <laughs> in the U.S. of A. Yeah. I distinctly um, remember going for a walk with my parents once, and I got really excited because I like learned how to like look for salamanders, and I flipped over like maybe fifty rocks, and then I finally found one. I was like, "Mom, I oh, found it's one!" But it took me a while. Yeah. Redback salamander. No, <laughs> if yeah, it, the hook species for I think a lot of children <laughs> interested in the natural world around here, um, but. So, so like birds are flashy. Birds are common. Birds are available pretty much wherever you go. Like even in like some of the most uh, 
<laughs> denatured landscapes. You're yeah. gonna you're gonna find some birds yeah. hanging around. Um, and so I think it's a it's an easy gateway into kind of looking at the natural world and like there's enough variety that it stays interesting for a very long time, yeah. potentially an entire lifetime. Definitely an um, entire lifetime. <laughs> and and, and the, I, 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 it's accessible, right? And like trees, I think like and Brent and I have both found that like we I've kind of pushed I, I think like into like slightly more new or not nuanced but niche uh, nature interest like brian's super gone deeply into moths yeah relatively recently yeah um and <laughs> I, I i've gotten into tree id as well just like paying attention to that i got into mushroom id um a couple years ago and so like, those things kind of come with time and a willingness to like dedicate large chunks of your own free time into like <laughs> studying and just going through field guides and yeah. uh, committing them to memory but birds are just something that like catch the hearts of people like easily. Like I, I think that gets to the heart of it. Yeah, yeah. I would. I definitely add some things to that. I think that was all um, definitely on point. One, um, comparing and contrasting birds and moths, for instance, as James pointed out, I have been really into moths lately, which has been really interesting uh, to kind of you know I basically start from scratch. Um, and be like, I know nothing about the moths in this area. And every time I go out to look at moths, I see species I haven't seen before, which is very exciting. But also, like, moths are an identification nightmare. Like, mm. often there are whole complexes of moths that you can't, like, identify to species. And obviously, you know, what constitutes a species is yeah. a, a very convoluted there's topic. But generally... There's, and, so, there's a similar problem with mushrooms, where I, I, I quickly found that, like... At a certain point, large swaths of the mushroom family tree, you're going to family. You're not even bothering with genus or species because you need, like, chemical tests yeah. in order to mm-hmm. determine what you're looking at. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there's that. Like, birding, generally, there are some exceptions. Generally, like, the birds are really well studied. There's a ton of literature on them. And they're also pretty kind of distinct most of the time. And typically, you can tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, compared to a lot of other, like, taxa, you know, identification is usually not a huge problem. Um, also, as I pointed out earlier, um, like vagrancy is a huge part. I think what gets people excited about birds, if you ask, um, you know, just a birder on the street, like what sign that hooked you, um, a frequent response will be like, oh, I, the first time I saw like a rare bird. Um, mm-hmm. And we were talking about rare birds, not only in like the range restricted sense, but also because birds have this uh, tendency that's really unique among, you know, the other taxa of animals that people could look at to wander outside of their mapped range. You know, you can be out in the field really on any given day and come across something that has never been seen before in the state of Maine, for instance, you know, mm-hmm. Was just there, like that black hawk. Room? Oh yeah, the, like yeah, the, the great black hawk. Yeah. Brennan yeah. skipped class to go see the black hawk. I, I was there. You, I did. The uh, teacher let him. The te- <laughs> <laughs> you asked? Elizabeth yeah, Muther, like, English and Africana Studies professor, <laughs> said, "Brennan, well. you follow your dreams." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So no, that, that, that's. A, I mean, that's a great example. Like that was a bird that had never been seen before in the United States, and was in Portland. Like, there's really few other things that compare to that. And then one last thing I think that's really important about birding um, and another way in which birding kind of is a tool for environmental activism and political activism uh, ultimately is that I think birds do a really good job of embodying place to a degree. Mm -hmm. Like when you Mm -hmm. think of a, and I think this is partly because of their auditory capabilities. Like Mm -hmm. if you think of a, a New England woodland in the spring, like a quiet morning waking up in your tent, for instance, like what a huge part of that landscape is bird song right. or or the spectacle of birds you know a, a, a common loon having like a haunting whale over a, a lake in 
you know, northern New Hampshire or being on a, a a beach at you know late summer on Cape Cod and just having like masses of shorebirds like whirl around you like it's part of a a, a much broader kind of just experience <coughs> in the natural world that you can certainly get and I certainly seek out uh, increasingly with other taxes you know like going out to monitor you know amphibian breeding in vernal pools in the winter but there's something that's so accessible and consistent mm-hmm. about the embodiment that birds like endow upon you know, various different landscapes and ways in which I feel like I'm at home when I, like, hear a bird song in a place that I recognize. Um, that's, I think, a huge, a huge part of it. So. Yeah, and I, I think, like, in a world where we're kind of increasingly separated from really experiencing like, where we are and understanding, like, our, like, position on the landscape and how we interact with nature, like, having those sorts of emotional ties to bird species that are living around you and knowing like the comings and goings of different species throughout the year, their, their annual cycles, um, what they're doing when like they're breeding and being able to look at those behaviors and know like, Oh, all of these birds are (laughs) in like the massive project of producing children at this time of year. And they're like working their asses off. I'm sorry. Can I say that? Um, (laughs) To make babies. And like, it's, 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 uh, like, I, I think it it almost gets to, like, something that is, like, politically radical in a way. To, like, really take the time to, like, say, like, I'm going to choose to look at this as opposed to other things that are going on in the world. And, like, make sure that I'm taking the time to understand what's happening here is something of, uh, a, like, rebellious act yeah. <laughs> at and also, this point. Yeah. Which is terrible. But <laughs> that it's come to that. <laughs> and also, I mean, not not all birds migrate, but I think in terms of just like connecting you to that like broader picture, like mm-hmm. migration is really, really fascinating and just a phenomenal way to kind of ground yourself in like the natural rhythms of uh, the place that you live. You know, there's nothing quite like being out in the woods in early March and like hearing the first Phoebe of the year, mm-hmm. like right on time, like they're back. And of course, those are the kind of things where, you know, as the climate changes, the you know, differences in like, arrival dates and stuff will change. But just the idea that you are so tapped into that system that like from year to year, you can identify when birds are returning. And some birds, you know, they're migrating from Southern South America to the Arctic, you know, every single year. And you happen to just run into them at like one point on that journey and they're exhausted and they're just doing their thing. Um, and I think it's a really important way to ground yourself, you know, frequently, um, during the spring semester, for instance, if I, you know, bog finals happen to generally fall right as the birding is best during mm. may during the height of spring migration <laughs> uh, but anyway, if I, think it, I think it says a lot about your character or uh, depending on what you choose to <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. is succeeding <laughs> or birding so you know, as like you, wa- you walk out of a particularly stressful uh, exam and you get outside and there's a blackburnian warbler like singing on the quad and you know like roughly where it came from and you know where it's going mm-hmm. and you know it'll be back in the fall and the same bird might be back in the same tree in the spring you're like honestly like life goes on like we are just doing this mm-hmm. um and that's a really you know interesting phenomenon to tap into mm-hmm. so. and, and it does a great job of like making you pause and consider like yeah like i am like living here in some way connected to the arctic and some way connected to the neotropics yeah um, we're all in when, this you together. S- when you see sh- <laughs> like when we're like on ken island uh working with our uh storm petrels like these guys during the winter head to like off the coast of like Africa and then go back down to like South America, they just cross the Atlantic Ocean. Like, it's insane that like they're covering such ground, uh, even just during a single year. And like, knowing that like their sense of place is extended to like half of the like the planet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
And that's an interesting thing with uh, migratory birds as well, because I think when you, there's a myriad of threats that migratory birds face, but let's just say you're, you're walking down the street and you see a, a warbler, migratory warbler, neotropical uh, warbler, killed by a window strike, you know, hits a window, falls to the pavement, it's dead, it's lifeless there, and you pick it up, and I think there's something really important about it. Put it in your pocket and you put it in your freezer. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to say that. Yeah, that yeah, is technically that. illegal. It's highly illegal. <laughs> um, I'm trouble with voting about that before. That's <laughs> pretty incredible about being like not only have now i been robbed of this like species and this experience but like the like people in northern canada where this bird breeds like this bird will not reach them you know people in central america where this bird winters this bird will not reach them mm -hmm. like the the impact that every decision we make here on a localized scale especially when you extrapolate it to the effects that has on migratory birds that traverse you know huge portions of the earth it really draws these connections that again like piece together how you know the idea of a these localized systems are kind of uh, yeah, what they're susceptible to mm. you're talking about rare species like the black hawk yeah um are there any particular rare species that you're especially proud of seeing um and also what species of bird initially got you into this whole lifelong thing that <laughs> appears to take up not just you know day-to-day -day time but like every moment of your thought yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah you start i'll try to think of an anecdote yeah i mean spout off like 30. <laughs> <laughs> i i feel i've been fortunate enough to see a lot of rare birds and actually as we speak driving home to connecticut tomorrow uh there's a whole bunch of rare birds in new england that i'm strategizing on how I'm going to see how I'm, I'm going to fit all of them into the limited daylight that I have because uh, I hope to see a bunch um, but honestly I mean the great black hawk was honestly really incredible rarity to see I mean just in terms of like the sheer um, improbability of it showing up where it did it's hard to compare to that I mean honestly very few North American birding stories could ever compare to the uh, just complete out of placeness of a hawk that was you know is well suited to hunt snakes in mangroves in Belize showing up eating squirrels on a green in Portland. That was very weird. But just in terms of like rare species, um, there's also species that instead of being rare in terms of they show up out of place, they're just objectively like range restricted, low population and hard to find. And so I think some of the most impactful and like memorable birding experiences in my life come from um, finding species like that, like a holy grail bird, a bird that you work really hard to see and you tra traverse all this ground and you know, you've done all your research to figure out where your best shot is, and then you eventually connect with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, thinking about, um, again, another Alaska anecdote. Uh, up on the Seward Peninsula, so this is like kind of the Bering Sea land bridge, just like one of the most incredible landscapes I've ever, I've ever been in. Um, and hiking up over these just like subsequent peaks, you know, snowy peaks on the tundra, looking for this bird called a bristle-thighed curlew, um, which breeds on like remote Pacific islands in the South Pacific, but nests in like these incredibly inaccessible, just like pockets of tundra up in the mountains, like far removed from any human habitation. Um, and just like, we could hear this bird like off in the distance. And every time we rounded like a subsequent hilltop, you know, we're just like, bushwhacking through gorse and it's like the wind is just whipping at us and we just like we keep pushing it over the hill we can't see it and finally like you just see it at a distance like perched up on top of this rock like singing um and just like experiences like that you know there's a certain also you know and i wouldn't deny that in birding there's a certain element especially for me as a lister i like to like see new stuff it's it's partly the, like the thrill of the chase for me um and where the chase brings me but that's a, a really important experience um yeah, I, I mean, I certainly don't have the birding resume that Brennan does. Uh, how many species do <laughs> you have these days, Brennan? Um, 
I'm in the 800s. Uh, my plan is to see my 1,000th species. Uh, what exact number of birds so have you seen so far? Have I think I'm at 820. Yeah, he, he does know the answer. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you think a normal person has laid their eyes upon, like, how many? Like, that's a really, yeah, we were talking about that's that. a really good like, question. I would say that, they, like, over the... <laughs> a normal person. <laughs> a normie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <coughs> over the... Like, I mean, someone our age, I would say he's probably seen, like, a hundred species of birds, even if they don't recognize it. Yeah, they, I, right? Probably, probably. <laughs> Honestly, like maybe. I feel like a lot of the birds are kind of hard to see. Like, like a lot of the ones we give, a, we we say are givens are like like warblers and stuff that are just like yeah. behind leaves. Frankly, yeah. most of the time, <laughs> so like I feel like it would be kind of easy not to mm. see those. But yeah. who knows? Interesting. Um, I might have seen a hundred birds in my lifetime. You never know. Okay. You should. You should make a list sometime. It's fine. Just go through a guide and be like, "I've seen Brendan that." Brendan would love that. to help you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but James, but and, and and so my rare birds I, I really aren't as rare as Brendan as Brendan's are. But I I remember my first time like saying like, "Oh, like I like desperately want to find this bird." Like past like being a little kid and having seen like no birds. Um, I was doing a, a big hike through like the hundred mile wilderness. Uh, with my friend right before I came to Bowdoin, actually, and I had this big goal because I had only recently found out about the Bicknell's thrush, yeah. which is this uh, thrush similar to the uh, wood thrush that we mentioned earlier, um, but they live, like, uh, high-altitude, like, New England, like, Krumholtz forests at, like, near the tops of mountains. Like, that's the only place they're found. Mm. Um, and I was like, I want to find one. And after, like, six days of hiking, like, out oh in the absolute middle of nowhere, <laughs> like... I hear one and I see it like flying around like at the top of like White Cap Mountain in the middle of nowhere. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and this this past summer, I had the um, opportunity to, while I was working for uh, Maine Inland Fish and Wildlife doing bird surveys across the state um, to experience like a lot of really like special moments with birds that are difficult to find and experience. Like there was this one point when I was um, up somewhere near Rangeley camping somewhere legally and um, <laughs> and, and I woke up you just got so much street cred yeah so much street cred right um, I, I you swore cred. earlier and uh, <laughs> okay. and, it's in and, the name of birding yeah. okay. and um and I, I hear the incredible like booming water drop call of an American bittern which is a, a kind of cryptic species of heron that we have hanging around here and like this was one of the birds I was tasked with finding for the breeding bird atlas, and mm-hmm. I was like, my special mission was finding these guys, which can be somewhat difficult to find. And like hearing them do this call over like a wetland, like at four a.m., just as I was waking up, was incredible. Because yeah. mm-hmm. um, I'd been waiting to hear that song for the longest time, and I was finally mm-hmm. able to like check one off for this box, yeah. which was <laughs> very satisfying. Yeah. Do you have any, uh, or maybe it's a list? Maybe it's not a list. Do you have birds that you like want to see in the future? Like, what's 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 the future looking Any, like, like for you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, right now for me, um, I definitely you know I'm getting to the point where I've seen, and this is you know weird flex. Okay, I've seen <laughs> <laughs> most of the birds that you could potentially see in New England. Um, like, I really have just one or two birds left that are pers- you know feasible for me to add to my overall like life list um, while remaining within the confines of New England. This is primarily um, South Polar Skua, which is a pelagic or an offshore species that I cannot believe I haven't seen already. Uh, <laughs> but that's that's one of the local targets, uh, one of the few. As uh, 
you know, the, the list of possible additions gets smaller, the, generally the time and effort you have to spend to add a new species uh, increases exponentially. Uh, so I'm kind of currently experiencing that. But then in terms of overall goals, um, I'll be abroad in Ecuador uh, in the spring and um, expect to pretty rapidly see my 1,000th species of bird, uh, which is a big milestone that when I was first starting birding you know, in elementary school, uh, I, if someone had told me that I would have seen a thousand species by the time I was 20, I would have freaked out. So it's pretty cool to know that I've kind of just like done my thing uh, and I'm on track to, to do that. So that's, yeah, that's, that's like the big goal that's mm. coming up, mm. um, which I'm very excited about. Mm. And honestly, uh, after that, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I, I desperately need to see a dove key this winter because for some reason I haven't seen a dove key yet. And they're these cute little uh, fluff potatoes that float around <laughs> the ocean all winter. They're related to puffins, but they're tiny. They're so small. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm going to make an effort to hang under the ocean mm-hmm. a good amount and just bag one of those. But I've, I've got a ton of birds I've, I've got left to see. I haven't done too much traveling outside of the U.S. either. So pretty much if I go to a new country, I'm going to see a ton of new things, which is mm. also very exciting to yeah. have that yeah. available. Like, yeah. <laughs> and even if I go like, to like Southern United States, like, <laughs> everything I see is going to be like vividly new. Yeah. So yeah. You know, mm. hopefully, you know, this post-grad life takes me to <laughs> some neat places. Some other places. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah. And that's the nice thing about being in, in, into birds. I think, uh, if you are willing to subject yourself to some ridiculous field jobs, um, and you have bird expertise and a willingness and enthusiasm to just be, you know, in the field, banding birds, doing whatever, uh, can take you to some really phenomenal mm-hmm. places. I mentioned earlier that one of the large draws, I think, especially for me, but for a lot of people, is where birding takes you, especially as you are seeking out those, like, harder-to-find species. Um, it takes you to places that you would never go if you weren't looking for birds, um, and that's a huge part of the adventure of it. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right, we'll close off with one last question. Um, knowing what it's like to engage with nature in sort of this taxonomical um, and, like, deep knowledge of species and listing, um, you sort of engage with nature in, in a different and particularly interesting sort of way that I think a lot of people don't normally. Um, do you have any advice as birders or bird people for the <laughs> non-birder in everyone else? I, f- I feel like just having a field guide in your home, like, getting a siblings and just, like, having that available if you're ever bored, you can flip through it and then like you'll very quickly start to pick up things and be like oh like i can notice that outside now like easily like just like having those images in your head like you can start to like see so much interesting things outside that like you just would not have noticed as anything other than like a bird before and that you can that, like it's true for birds it's true for thalamanders it's true for anything <laughs> yeah i would definitely i would definitely echo that i think the most important thing that birders can do to um encourage non-birders um is just give them try to try to you know maintain that infectious enthusiasm for just like curiosity in all of its forms um because it doesn't like you know i'm definitely an advocate for birding but realistically it doesn't have to be birding um i think oftentimes birding is a really easy thing for people to get into and get outside just because for the reasons we mentioned it is so accessible but like if you just get a guide for literally anything and make it like a weekend's task to just like learn 10 new trees or learn, you know, the bird songs of just like the five species that nest in your backyard. Um, like that goes huge, that goes a huge length to just like mobilizing a population to just like be more connected to the, the outside world in ways that I think are more essential than ever right now. Um, 
and also just like I, I'd like to remind people that um, as a birder, even if you are the newest <laughs> birder ever who doesn't know anything, just by being out there, you know, you could find things that have never been seen before in the state. Like there's constantly you're part of something greater that you really can never predict. And that's super exciting. Um, it's like Pokemon Go in real life. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you should just bird. Like, that's the... Conclusion. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would never tell someone not to bird. Yeah, there's no reason not to. In, in the same way that, like, you don't go around, you know, your day-to-day life looking at all your friends and stuff and saying, like, look at all these people. Like, you're saying, like, oh, like, look at all these birds without knowing, like, what which birds they are. Like, kind of ridiculous that people don't do that yeah and i've also I've, I, I, I have gotten from certain people like some older birders who are like gripe that you know there are now so many birders like you know at the at the good birding locations like i'm not alone in the woods anymore there's like people huh. everywhere <gasps> and like that is you know people bird in different ways like the solitude of being out you know in the woods is definitely one reason why people get into it but at least in my experience and i, I think for the majority of birders out there as birding communities have flourished like birding in a community and being part of a birding community is like a huge part of the experience like you know going to chase a rare bird and having like hundreds of other people there and everyone's just like super excited about the same thing you are and you know just like and that's really i would not trade that for the world um because i know that no matter how much of a bum i end up um <laughs> I will, I will, I will be a birder, and there will be a community that I am part of and respects me. <laughs> so, yeah, that's part. Of it. Yeah. Happy for you, Brandon. Thank you. <laughs> I think, I think the same goes for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, wonderful. Uh, do you want to close us out with your favorite bird calls, potentially? That we could like oh play God. over the air. That you could imitate you could yourself. Imitate oh, yeah. Or, like, yeah, you gotta like work your work your skills. Here's a moment to practice. Bag and tag this one, Brandon. So that was a Leech's Storm Petrol. <laughs> what are you talking about? That was not a Leech's Storm Petrol. That was 110 percent a Leech's Storm Petrol. Dick Sissel. Not a Dick Sissel. <laughs> I, I, I know Dick Sissel's flight call. I don't know their actual song. We'll throw it the, out the, there. The Dick Sissel's flight call, if you hear just a bzz, bzz, like going over your head, um, that's probably what that was, even mm. if you don't see it. Um, the only bird song that I am really adept at doing is a barred owl, um, which is pretty cliche. Yeah, um, yeah just I mean, yeah, just go for it, Brennan. Oh, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> Frequently, barred owls will call back and forth to one another, and if you are out in you know a wet woods on a, a buggy June night and you start doing that, uh, it's pretty easy to have conversations with barred owls. Uh, which is a pretty special that's, experience. That's pretty also crazy. in the winter too. They, yeah, they they're start calling like January, <laughs> February, pretty frequently. Again, talking about the, I associate barred owl calls with wet nights in June. Doesn't mean that's the only place they call, but it's all about the embodiment of place. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, Brendan and James, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you guys <laughs> thank you for having us. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Tune in next week to hear our conversation with Gary Lawless, author, advocate, and owner of Gulf of Maine Books in Brunswick, as we share some of his work and bring our sustainability dialogue to the wider community. 
Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available after the show on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu sustainability under the green tea tab. There you can also find show notes and descriptions of past episodes. If you'd like to share any thoughts or stories, we'd love to hear from you. Please email Marie at mscaspar, that's M-S-C-A-S-P-A-R, at bowdoin.edu to get in touch. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of Season 1. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.